Hello and welcome to one of those podcast-only editions of the Culture File Weekly. And the next half hour we're going to spend in the company of Harold McGee. McGee has just concluded a decade-long journey into smell. His account of his travels, Nosedive, leads us from prehistoric carrion to the art of listening to smell, from chemistry to neuroscience, from flatulence to perfume. McGee has formed with this kind of guide his chunkily influential on food and cooking did a similarly comprehensive job on things you put into your mouth. It became a bible for a wave of creative cooking, inspiring chefs such as Heston Blumenthal to remake their art from its ideas. And Culturefile began our conversation with Harold McGee on the aftershocks his work created. One of the things about your friendship with Heston Blumenthal was that he kind of credits you with opening his eyes to how much one didn't know about food and cooking, how much you really had to do the experimental work. Yes, uh, I was thrilled for for Heston to say that, but I think what he learned from my book was, uh, as he put it, to question everything that he'd been taught, and even his own impressions of things. So there were a couple of things in my book that surprised him. And uh, so he went back and cooked and paid close attention and realized that the, the received wisdom about searing meat, for example, to seal in the juices um, just wasn't correct. And that led him to uh, to question everything he'd learned and everything he thought he knew. And I think that's part of the reason he has had the success he has is that he's he's really mastered the the profession in a way that um, many people don't has nosedive the potential to kind of seed those kind of developments uh, in the olfactory realm well uh, i hope so uh, I, I, my hope for nosedive and i i called it gave it the subtitle a field guide to the world's smells what I would love is for people simply to pay attention to the fact that there are these smells out there and that they tell us something about the way the world works. Pay attention to the smell of compost or the the smell of the warm air coming out of your laptop <laughs> because there's information there about those things and it's it's fascinating to follow. I did have the opportunity to go to Japan and to participate in a uh, practice that's called in English, translation, uh, incense listening. <laughs> so incense, of course, is something that has a smell. And uh, listening is a term that we use for hearing things, for sounds. And there's this wonderful crossover in the language that's used, listening to incense, because we don't really have the equivalent for smells of the word listening as opposed to hearing. When we hear a sound, we just kind of register the fact that it's there. When we listen, we pay attention and we get something out of that experience. And so it's the, the application of the idea of listening to smells that's the purpose of this practice in Japan. So what they do is they'll take a little bit of incense wood, uh, valuable, highly prized agar wood, for example, which has a, an amazing smell like really like nothing else, and they'll handle it in, in a very careful way. They won't simply burn it. They'll warm it up, and then what you do is you inhale deeply 
that particular aroma and think about it and register it and pay attention to it and come up with a, a kind of uh, inner representation for what that identity is. And then you move on to a different kind of wood and you register its differences from the other one. And in that way, you cultivate a, an appreciation for these different materials at the same time that you're also uh, in a way, uh, realizing our potential as as animals in in listening to incense, in tasting wine, in paying very close attention to smells in general, uh, I think what we 're doing is exercising an element of our being uh, as animals that generally we don 't, and so we we begin to make contact with a part of ourselves that in everyday life we're, we're simply not that aware of. And I think that that enriches our experience. It's not that we have to go around, uh, you know, sniffing the air all the time. But when we think of it, when we notice something worth paying attention to, we know how to stop and pause and sniff and understand what it is that we're experiencing. So the real base question here you know, which we think we understand is, why do some things smell and other things appear to have no odor? Well, for something to smell, it has to be emitting small molecules of itself. And by small, I mean um, molecules, of course, are already very, very small. But uh, molecules can either stick to each other or they can uh, be too heavy to fly off into the air where we can breathe them in and sense them. So it's particular kinds of molecules that we detect as smells. And they're small, and they tend not to be very soluble in water. So if they're in a, in a liquid or in uh, watery cells like the cells of a plant, they don't really like that neighborhood so much chemically speaking, and so they find it easy to liberate themselves, fly off into the air, and that's where we can breathe them in and uh, notice that they're there. And that relationship, we find that then in all sorts of things, that there are molecules which are too big to fly into the air, and then those, other, those molecules that are, are small enough to get there. And the processes between the big molecule and the little molecule are all over our food and drink and perfume. That's right. Living things are made up of large molecules. Uh, and so for us to smell living things, and that's where most smells come from, those large molecules have to be converted somehow or other into smaller ones, which we can then pick up. And there are a variety of ways in which that can happen in, uh, in the world. One of them is simply metabolism. Plant and animal uh, tissues are constantly building themselves up and breaking themselves down. The byproducts of that metabolism, some of them are volatile and can fly through the air and we can detect them. Plants also intentionally make small molecules to communicate with each other and to ward off animals or to beckon them to uh, come and pollinate their flowers or take their fruit. And then cooking is a way uh, that we humans have found of breaking down large molecules in foodstuffs to make smaller molecules that um, make foods smell and taste delicious. 
flower is a relatively recent uh, invention on the part of plants. They've only been around for dozens of millions of years rather than hundreds or thousands of millions of years, relatively recent. And they arose in conjunction with the presence of animals and insects in particular, which are able to fly around uh, from one place to another. Plants have the disadvantage of being stuck in one place. They can't really get in touch with each other directly, so they rely on these go-betweens, insects, bees and uh, moths and many other insects, in fact, to carry pollen from, from one flower to another. And they beckon those um, conveyors of pollen with signals. Uh, some of the signals are visual uh, and others are chemical. They give off small molecules to attract bees and moths and other insects to come and help themselves to some nectar. Your idea is that maybe when plants and flowers first tried to attract insects and other creatures, they did so not with um, the molecules that we'd now kind of consider floral and uh, pleasant, but the the opposite end of the spectrum. In fact, we, we don't really know for sure. That's a possibility because uh, plants had been dealing with insects for a long, long time before the invention of flowers. And so they probably adapted the, the machinery for doing that in flowers. And the first insects that they may have beckoned may in fact have been insects that were um, more interested uh, in other aspects of vegetation. That is to say, the nourishment that they can provide when they're decaying, when they're rotting. And so there are flowers today that attract flies by uh, imitating the smells of rotting flesh. And it may be that some of those smells may have been among the earliest smells that flowers uh, figured out to make. Culture has a lot to do with whether we find a, a smell pleasant or unpleasant. A, a lot of the chemicals that we find very unpleasant aren't necessarily dangerous or anything, but we have still developed a kind of code around when we find them acceptable and when we don't. Our uh, reaction to smells uh, depends on our database of experience. It depends on what we associate those particular molecules with, what, what experiences, what situations, what materials. And um, it's by being exposed to those things in the course of our lives that we develop associations and expectations. The origin story of the book is in the St. John restaurant in London where you experience grouse for the very first time. That's right. It was a very particular lunch uh, at St. John in London a few years ago when I happened to be there during grouse season. And uh, grouse is not something we ever see in the U.S. So I immediately decided I was going to have that experience. And I assumed it being a, a game bird that it would be kind of like pigeon or duck or, you know, one of those more full-flavored birds that I was already familiar with. And I was having a nice conversation, took my first bite of grouse, and the flavor was so unexpected, so unlike duck or pigeon. Strong and meaty and funky and uh, complicated. 
that for a good 15 or 20 seconds, I couldn't get a word out. I was, my, my brain was just completely focused on figuring out what is this that I just <laughs> experienced and is it safe? Is it something that I should maybe be on my guard about? And uh, my companions at the table for a moment thought that I was having a heart attack or something. <laughs> it was an amazing, very powerful experience. And it really emphasized for me, there's often something going on that we're not quite able to grasp, that we're not quite aware of. And that moment kind of raised that, that mystery level for me to the point that I had to look further into it and understand what happened to me. The complication that we have is often the linguistic one because there you are talking about something that you ate. So we assume the experience of that is, is a taste thing, but taste and flavour and, and scent are, are more complicatedly interwoven than, than we give them credit for sometimes. That's right. Uh, the, the English language does not do us any favours when it comes to describing the experience of food and drink. Uh, because we will talk about the taste of something when what we really mean is um, something much more than taste strictly defined, which is the sensations we get on our tongue. Uh, we have a half dozen to a dozen different taste sensations, but we have uh, countless uh, odor sensations. And flavor is the combination of taste and smell texture as well, touch, uh, irritation, the, the experience of a bite of food uh, or the sip of a, a be beverage is a very, very complicated thing. And uh, taste just doesn't do it justice. The, the important thing about aroma is that it's what gives us the, the tremendous variety that we enjoy in flavors. We have uh, about 400 different receptors for smell in the nose. And unlike the receptors for tastes on the tongue, which pretty much report on one particular thing, sweetness or sourness or saltiness, uh, in the case of the uh, odor receptors in the nose, a group of them can participate in one sensation. So when we smell something, we're actually not smelling just one thing. Uh, we think, for example, of the smell of vanilla as being just the smell of vanilla. But in fact, the smell of vanilla is composed of many, many different molecules, which are forming, you can think of it as a bit like a chord in music. It's not a single note. It's a chord that gives us an overall impression of vanilla. And those many different molecules interact with many different receptors in our nose all at the same time. And then that information is channeled to the brain where the brain puts all those different uh, interactions together into unified perception. Ah, that's vanilla. So it's a, a much more complicated sensation than taste is and actually still mysterious in many respects. We're still learning a great deal uh, every year about what exactly is going on between the molecule and the perception. The chord idea sort of explains some of the quite split 
feelings we have about smells because it's the idea there that there would be part of a smell that exists in in one combination and it exists in another combination that is a different smell and one of them feels positive and one of them feels negative but they do contain the same elements. Yes, that's exactly it and in fact that's something that um, I think is the the most direct entryway into paying more attention to smells is noticing all of the sudden, maybe for the first time, that there's an element of one, that the smell of one thing that, that's unexpected, that kind of gets your attention momentarily by its um, discordance or apparent discordance. And, and you realize that it's reminding you of something else. Uh, and that's a moment where you're recognizing this shared note in these two different chords. One of my favorite examples of that, and I think one that many people uh, have experienced, is the the smell of Parmesan cheese, which is a, a wonderful ingredient, very versatile, and so most of us have had experience of it. And if you pay close attention, you'll notice sometimes that it has uh, an element of the aroma of pineapple, a ripe pineapple. So uh, when I first noticed this, I thought, oh, that's, that's very nice. But then I thought, but wait a minute, what does old moldy cow's milk have in common with a ripe tropical fruit? They're totally different materials, and yet they share this note. The smells of ripe fruits are often due to a group of molecules called esters, and esters are combinations of small acid molecules with small alcohol molecules. And fruits are the, the masters at uh, taking these, these various ingredients and putting them together into esters, which therefore smell fruity. And it turns out that the bacteria that ripen cheeses can sometimes do the same thing for their own purposes in a cheese where the the fats and the proteins are being broken down into smaller bits, among those smaller bits are acids and alcohols, and these um, kind of alchemist bacteria will take those two pieces, put them together, and uh, generate this aroma that is precisely the same molecule as the one that you would find in a ripe pineapple. I had a brother who was a wine writer uh, who had obviously developed those kind of um, the recognition of these elements. But there seemed always to be something fictional, and it is a sort of the cliche of a description of the wine. No, there isn't stables. There isn't bricks in there because it's made from grapes. How, you know, what could you possibly be talking about? I think one of the reasons that um, wine writing, for example, is sometimes not held in the highest esteem <laughs> is that uh, so often the descriptions seem so uh, crazy, so uh, arbitrary, uh, sweaty saddles in a wine. How, how could that possibly be the case? So it must be a figment of the imagination. Well, in fact, uh, people who pay a lot of attention to the aromas of wine, who are able to dissect the chord into its component notes, notice things that are, in fact, these echoes of very, very different materials in, in the world, sweaty saddles among them. And what, what would be the uh, molecule in a sweaty saddle they might be getting? Those are uh, rings, carbon rings, uh, small ones, 
uh, that are uh, in the class of phenolic compounds. And they're very closely related to the, to the same molecules that give us the smell of smoke. So often smokiness and, and uh, kind of old leather, those, those smells go together frequently. The other thing that we sometimes find in cheese and dairy products is is elements that we think are human. I mean, you know, smelly feet is is uh, is the typical idea. What's the molecule responsible there? I suppose. Well, uh, in the case of stinky cheeses and uh, and stinky feet, the uh, the molecules in common are um, breakdown products of the proteins. So uh, we were just speaking of uh, breakdown uh, products of fats that make esters. Well, there are also breakdown products of proteins. And, of course, our skin and we ourselves are made up mostly of protein. That's something that, that distinguishes animals from plants. And so our, our feet, our skin uh, is a rich source of material for microbes to break down the proteins for energy and to build themselves and so on. And some of the byproducts of that breakdown are what give the smell of uh, sweaty feet on the one hand and uh, sweaty cheeses on the others uh, because uh, the stinky cheeses are by and large the cheeses that have been washed with a brine that is very much like the sweat that makes our skin a very hospitable place for bacteria. One of the things you suggest in the book is that that quality that was possible in cheeses may have been, the, you know, the reason people wanted to make cheese and wanted to be around cheese and eat cheese. Is that it? Well, tell us that story. That's that's kind of amazing to me. Well, it's it's not so much a story as a uh, a wild theory <laughs> of mine. <laughs> but that's a story. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. I suppose uh, it's a story how I came to that. So. So uh, I came up with this idea uh, when I asked myself the question, why would human beings go to the tremendous extra trouble it takes to give cheeses these stinky feet aromas? Because it means uh, washing these cheeses every day or every few days with a brine when you could simply leave them to ripen on their own and they wouldn't develop those flavors, but it also wouldn't take all that trouble. Um, and I, I just wonder whether very, very early on when human beings were learning how to convert milk into cheese, into something that would last and uh, nourish people long after milk would otherwise have spoiled, whether this strange fermented material would would be somehow more reassuring, more interesting, more familiar in a way if they could coax from it uh, smells that were already familiar from human bodies. And so perhaps these cheeses were um, cultivated in order to bring out that quality um, and make the cheeses in a way more human. Cheese is one example of that. But a chemical that came up again and again in the book and seemed completely fascinating in how it uh, works with humans and, and how humans respond to it is this chemical called indole. Yes, indole is uh, one of these molecules that is the product of protein breakdown. So uh, it's very particular to animals and to animal products, usually. <laughs> so um, 
Indole is something that's found in animal decay and in in animal excrements, which are the the waste products of of animal metabolism. Uh, but indole is also found occasionally in the plant world, and it's found in particular in some flowers, uh, jasmine, uh, especially notably among them where it gives a, a peculiar uh, and distinctive animal note to the fragrance. And it's a smell, an aspect of the smell that um, some people like and many people don't. Uh, but in any case, you, you can certainly tell the difference between jasmine and, um, and most other flowers. And it turns out that uh, perfumers are very interested in those notes that are um, animalic. Um, we think of perfume as generally being based on uh, floral fragrances. But floral fragrances can sometimes be uh, kind of dull and um, straightforward. And, you know, you smell one flower, you've smelled them all. If you add a little bit of uh, an animalic note, uh, a touch of indole, rather, whether through jasmine or actually through some animal products that are used in perfumery, um, that can bring a, an added um, note that, that catches our attention, that makes us uh, somehow more interested in that smell, even though we're not exactly sure what's going on. I love that idea at, that they were they were sort of piggybacking on quite a a kind of ancient uh, response to a, to a fragrance. Even 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 in the haute couture perfume world, we were piggybacking on that on molecules which would get our attention by putting something that smells a little dangerous, and that and that attracts our attention. And that's at the heart of a lot of perfumery. That's right. It's uh, it's this uh, kind of subliminal attentiveness that we as animals uh, pay to the potential presence of other animals, <laughs> especially when they're not visible and known to us and uh, when, there's, when there's uncertainty surrounding it. So in the case of uh, a perfume, uh, a floral fragrance by itself is kind of one-dimensional and very pleasant, but if you add a little bit of this um, signal of potential animal presence, uh, then again, subliminally, we pay more attention. We're we're not exactly sure what's going on, and so the that particular scent makes a stronger impression on us. One of the biggest ironies of the publication of Nosedive is that it happens in a year when we've a lot of us learned what anosmia is. That's right. It turns out that uh, one of the early symptoms of uh, COVID infection is the loss of the sense of smell and sometimes also the sense of taste. Even though I myself have not had COVID, I can speak to what this is like because I lost my sense of smell to a viral infection in the course of writing nosedive. Sounds like a judgment of the gods it, or something. Yeah, it really it? does. Do not finish this book. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> I came down from bed to make a cup of coffee. I made my cup of coffee uh, and then noticed after the first couple of sips that I wasn't smelling anything. The coffee just tasted bitter and sour, which is not what I'm looking for in a cup of coffee. And um, 
So I immediately contacted my uh, uh, contacts in the olfactory world, and they said, well, I'm afraid we really don't know anything of value about this experience, about this affliction, except that you just have to kind of be patient. Usually it'll come back. Uh, sometimes it doesn't. One way to help it come back is to consciously focus on trying to smell things every day. So that's what I did. And even with that effort and writing a book at the same time about the subject, it took about three months for me to get my sense of smell back. Did you feel like a different person? Uh, I felt, uh, I suppose I'd, I'd, I've never put it to myself quite that way, but I suppose I did because I I would see people uh, in everyday life and my own partner uh, enjoying food and realizing that I was missing <laughs> that that experience, that in a way I was a, a yeah, I belonged to a different uh, group of people. I could walk through my garden and not smell any flowers. I could rub a, a, a leaf of mint and not be able to smell anything. Um, so I felt, in, in a way, cut off from an aspect of reality that, that I usually felt in contact with. It must be incredibly frightening, given the project that you were in the throes of. It, it was, but then I, I did try to look <laughs> on the bright side, uh, uh, because it's true that uh, even before COVID, uh, there are a lot of people in the world who suffer either at one time or another or after a medical operation or congenitally um, suffer from diminishment of the the chemical senses, the senses of taste and smell. And I simply hadn't appreciated before this experience of my own um, uh, how devastating that can be. What this is or what I would love is the chemistry I learned in school just to be this. So everything was practical because we were never, you know, that's a, that's a thing about chemistry. Do not stick your nose in it is quite a good rule. <laughs> Whereas if it had been kind of guided around uh, things that were, that were sort of active in the nose, that would have been a real, that will be a really interesting way to teach chemistry. Yes, no, I, I feel the same way. I, uh, I often regret the fact that I spent my undergraduate science years studying physics <laughs> rather than chemistry. Uh, but um, I feel the same way. And in fact, I, I know of a couple of chemistry courses already that have adopted the book as a textbook and will be uh, taking that approach. Uh, and, and I think it is just such a wonderful one to, to, um, to make it such an immediate um, experience, something that a student can uh, actually experience him or herself directly and connect with a particular moment in time or with with materials that they're interested in i think that'll that'll make the chemistry stick in a way that just reading about it won't the the idea of be, you're being able to take the instruments and the chemistry set out of the equation kind of i mean i guess it's going to be there but it feels like a very kind of embodied sort of learning who's doing that course actually the the one i know about is uh at stanford very close by to to where i am here in palo alto it's a uh, an old friend of mine an emeritus professor of chemistry with whom I've had many happy hours of uh, sampling the chemistry of champagne and beer and <laughs> things like that. 
Richard Zare, Professor Richard Zare. And he teaches now a course in, uh, for, for undergraduates in the chemistry of food and cooking. And so he's, uh, he's going to be using it for that course. A nosedive with Harold McGee there. And Harold's book, Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells, is published by John Murray. And if you found this pod, chances are next to it in the list is this month's edition of the Culture File Debate, which also centres on the business of smelling, from the apprenticeship of a perfumer to the neuroscience of smell to the rise of smell-based weapons. It's worth a listen. Bye now.